This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We here in Ontario have been ordered for a third time in this pandemic to stay at home except for essential reasons. The order announced by Premier Doug Ford began on Thursday and will last for at least four weeks. It allows for in-person shopping for groceries, pharmacy items, outdoor exercise close to home, and essential work. While announcing the stay-at-home order, the Premier also revealed a plan to get essential workers vaccinated sooner, along with people 18 and older and education workers who live in COVID hot zones. Prior to the Premier's announcement on Wednesday, while filling in for Libby Snymer, I was joined by Peel Region's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, who explained how the third wave of the virus has evolved in Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon. Peel Region uh, really held off uh, the start of a third wave uh, far better than some of the other uh, regions around Ontario that you know, went into looser restrictions and then had to use the emergency break. Uh, we weren't seeing the third wave really take off until just in the last couple of weeks, unfortunately. And uh, it's very clear now as our hospitals increasingly get overwhelmed uh, and our cases soar to levels that, uh, uh, you know, we haven't seen since the height of the second wave, that the variants have won uh, this round of the um, of the race, unfortunately. What do you mean by this round? So, so all that to say uh, that, the, you know, the race itself is not lost. But essentially, uh, at this point in time, we aren't going to be able to vaccinate our way out of this wave quickly enough, which is why uh, stricter public health measures are, are absolutely needed at this point in time. And there, there is a bit of a precedent for this. In many other countries that received vaccine before us, uh, they also saw a third wave arrive, uh, you know, around the same time that they were trying to get their vaccine programs up and running in Israel and the U.K., and ultimately the same playbook could apply here. It needs to be, uh, you know, closed. Take those measures, you know, restrict contact interactions just the one last time, ramp up the vaccines, and then exit. That's essentially what they've done. You know, just to backtrack here a little bit, you made the comment that uh, it was only a couple of weeks ago that you saw that the, the vi- um, variants of the virus were starting to take off. Is that why uh, you allowed uh, or at least endorsed the idea of opening the patios in Peel region uh, and only to have to have them closed 10 or 11 days later? Yeah, absolutely. And that was because overall, we are looking at, you know, a situation here where ultimately being outdoors is better than indoors. So I think when we were, uh, when we were trying to figure out the best way to balance people's mental health and well-being uh, with the measures that were in place, uh, we did recommend things like outdoor activities, patios, uh, you know, um, and outdoor uh, fitness classes with an aim to really focus on uh, you know, people sticking with their immediate households, but being able to spend some time outside. The key message is, you know, try to spend some time outside, especially with the weather getting better. And if you do have to meet anybody for any essential purpose or whatever, uh, make sure that you are masked distance and you are, uh, you know, tr- preferring the outdoors to the indoors. What is the overall strategy here? 
Well, again, the overall strategy is to get through the age bands as quickly as we can, while also using mobile as a, as a useful adjunct, particularly for sectors and that may be at higher risk. Uh, we have to remember that mobile is, uh, you know, low uh, low throughput um, and high uh, resourcing because you have to set it up. You go there, set it up, and uh, you're really only getting you know a few people here and there at uh, a number of people there at the at the workplace. Whereas you know our mass vaccination clinics, as I mentioned, across the system, ten thousand a day. Um, so. You know, I think it's um, in terms of that vaccination, there's there. But until we get there, we're not going to vaccinate our way out of the third wave. And so we really do need uh, we we still need paid sick days because people are still showing up at work sick. People Mm -hmm. still aren't able to take time off to get a test or to self-isolate. We still need, uh, you know, the ongoing workplace inspections that our Ministry of Labor partners are doing to make sure that people are adhering to precautions. Um, you know, certainly rapid testing. And as was mentioned, you know, really revisiting the essential business list, providing support for businesses that could close right now, and then also just ensuring that other businesses really look at uh, reducing capacity and and contact. Do you have any success stories of uh, countries that we are following in terms of now the stay at home and the vaccinating at the same time? The the, uh, experience of Great Britain is very uh, instructive. I think uh, essentially the British uh, received, uh, produced a ton of vaccine. Uh, they're now, I think, at 30 or 40 percent coverage. Um, and then essentially their prime minister announced a, a one-way route uh, to, uh, to exit from measures. Uh, we can do that too here. Um, and so I know people don't like the idea of another, uh, another stay at home. But if we get this right, if we manage to reduce our contact interactions, uh, regardless of what gets announced, if we continue to all do our part in, you know, staying at home as much as possible, limiting our, you know, our uh, in-person uh, contacts to the most essential, uh, and obviously outdoors with distancing and masking, and then allow our vaccines to finally take flight, um, you know, things could look very much rosier, uh, probably through May and into June. Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Medical Officer of Health for the Region of Peel, Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The rollout of the COVID-19 AstraZeneca vaccine in a growing number of pharmacies and doctor's offices has been deemed a success, not just by the provincial PCs at Queen's Park, but by the pharmacists themselves. So much so, they've come up with a three-point plan to expand the program. Joining me on Wednesday to discuss, Zoomer Media friend and pharmacist Dean Miller of Whole Health Pharmacy and Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Well, it's been a tremendous success when you look at the phase one part of the rollout where we had over 325 stores and we have now completed all of the administration of the doses that we received. Uh, In fact, we actually went over 100% because we were able to get an extra dose out of each of the vials. So I would say that uh, we mobilized very quickly. We demonstrated our capacity and throughput and how we can be part of the broader solution. And now it's time to build on that success. Well, now there were two big deliveries, right? There was the delivery of the doses that expired on April 2nd, and then there was the delivery for the whole country of 1.5 million doses from the United States, which obviously Ontario got a a, a good chunk of. That's right. So we had short-dated supply for the two and a half weeks in the phase one. We have since expanded now. We've added another 360 pharmacies for phase two, and that uh, just happened over the weekend. So the uh, a portion of the amount of vaccine that came into Canada uh, has been uh, distributed to the pharmacy wholesalers, 
and some to primary care uh, offices as well. And uh, we're now in the process of administering those doses. And it has a different ex- expiration uh, up from the U.S. And how long do you think it will take, um, based on the supply that you've received so far, to use all of this up in the province of Ontario? Well, here's the good problem that we have. We are seeing tremendous demand for this vaccine, and uh, many are already going through the initial allotment. So phase two stores, the 360 I referenced earlier, each received 200 doses. And uh, many of uh, the pharmacies have thousands of people on a wait list. And so we'll go through that stock real quick. We're still trying to get uh, line of sight into what that replenishment strategy will be beyond the 200 doses. Um, I know the province is looking at directing supply to certain hotspot regions as well. So that may play a factor into where we go next here. Dean, what is your experience so far as president and CEO of Whole Health Pharmacy Partners? Um, yeah, Jane, you know, to concur with uh, what Justin's been saying, you know, the actual administration of the vaccine has been silky smooth. And, you know, I mean, pharmacists are well prepared because we've been doing influenza vaccine for years. So that part of it has been great. Um, as Justin mentioned, uh, you know, we had our initial allocation. We went through all of that. Um, you know, rather quickly and, and uh, you know, uh, credit to the pharmacist to get, you know, that 11th dose out of the vial. So, uh, you know, we've, we've actually over-indexed on that. You know, the big problem now is, as, as Justin said, is, is uh, you know, we've moved into a phase two and we've, you know, we've still got, you know, 2,500 other pharmacies that are just kind of chomping at the bit to get going. So, so you know, that's kind of what I see as probably the primary issue right now. But, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're certainly at the ready. Uh, any final thoughts until next time we speak? Well, get the vaccine that you're offered first. Uh, all four uh, and three that are in the market right now are safe and effective. And uh, we are looking forward to building out um, capacity and adding more pharmacies and more options and hopefully more vaccines so that we can get to the essential workers, priority populations, and eventually get to a place where we can open this up for anyone in the general population. We know that herd immunity will only happen if we can get the more people access to the vaccine. And Dean? Yeah, everything that Justin just said and, and adding to that, you know, pharmacies have been very busy places um, in the last couple of weeks. Don't give up. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, pharmacies have wait lists for their own patients. So either head down to your pharmacy, give them a call, or check their website. And that's probably the best way to uh, uh, find out whether uh, you can get in and get that vaccine. Dean Miller, President and CEO of Whole Health Pharmacy Partners, and Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, how COVID-19 in Ontario will get worse before it gets better. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Despite the more restrictive measures implemented in Ontario this past week, there are very real concerns backed by science 
that the daily COVID-19 numbers will continue to rise before they begin to decline. On Thursday, I was joined by Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Peter Uni, scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table, to get their prognoses. In the situation we are right now, we simply don't have enough vaccine doses in people's arms already to uh, be able to control the, the uh, pandemic. So what we need to do now is we need to tremendously decrease contact between people so that we're actually able to uh, to start to bend the curve. This will not be easy because this thing, this new variant, is just so much more transmissible. How resistant, and I don't know if that's a fair way to phrase the question, but how resistant has the Premier and the Cabinet Ministers been to heed your advice and the advice of others on the panel? Well, I'm, I'm unable to, uh, to give you an answer, uh, among other reasons. One is that, you know, I'm typically not in the cabinet or only, uh, only rarely so. And, uh, Stanley Brown is there. I think we had an ongoing discussion at several levels, including the ministry. And I'm glad now that, uh, you know, the, uh, the signal has been, has been, uh, seen and, uh, appreciated that we're really right now in a, in a precarious situation. When you say a precarious situation, um, how how desperate is it? Are we able, by taking the measures that were announced yesterday, to start to turn things around? It depends on every single one of us. You know, that's the issue here. Remember, 40% more transmissible. That's right now the uh, story that we have to tackle. 40% more transmissible than uh, the variants that we're all accustomed to from last year. The problem is that during the lockdown that we had in January, these new variants still were growing. Meaning, if we do exactly the same as in January, and every single one of us exactly behaves the same as in January, the new variants will still grow. They will grow less than right now, but they will still grow. So if we want to get this under control, we all just should now go back to the roots, basically, and do what we probably did about a year ago mm-hmm. and really make sure that we don't do anything that is not absolutely essential in terms of indoor activities with other people who are not part of our household. Uh, Dr. Vaisman is an epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and we're lucky enough to have him here as a regular on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. I'd like to hear what you think uh, about the Premier's announcement, which is now in effect for the stay-at-home order and this plan to get uh, more vaccine into more at-risk people. Yeah, on both fronts, it was very good news to hear because the way the cases were trending upwards over the last few weeks indicated that something drastic needed to be done in order for the something, you know, something to have to give. The, the cases were going rapidly rising. The ICU admissions were rapidly rising. So a lockdown order was absolutely necessary to help curb that. Unfortunately, we won't see the effects of that lockdown order for several weeks, as is the case often with these things uh, because of the incubation time of the virus. And in terms of the vaccination, I think it's, it's important that they recognize that there are certain high-risk groups that are of the lower age group that should be vaccinated in a prioritized fashion because they will be the ones who continue to work even during a lockdown. So it was good, good news all around on those two fronts. A lot of experts are saying the premier got it right this time, but he's done the right thing too late. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, when you think of, when you look back to the middle of March, uh, about the third week of March, when he saw the cases trending in the wrong direction, 
seeing those numbers plus knowing where the variants were going to, what direction they're going in, you know, we could have anticipated, and, and it was anticipated, as you mentioned, by the science table, that cases are going to rise this rapidly. So it would have been beneficial to have made some of these changes earlier on to prevent the current state, which is a very, very severe increase in ICU admissions, particularly. Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Peter Uni, scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's a case of jumping the COVID-19 vaccine queue, but not here in Canada. We're talking about Canadian citizens who are crossing the border to the U.S. to get their second dose of vaccine after getting the first shot here. The thinking is that they can get their second dose much faster in the U.S. than waiting four months for the second dose in Canada. Joining me on Thursday to discuss, Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, Inc. The real common phenomenon now is non-U.S. residents, Canadians who are traveling south to the Floridas, the Arizonas, the Palm Springs of the world, and getting the second vaccine after they had the first in Canada. Nothing to do with being a citizen of the U.S., just taking advantage of the fact that you can get your vaccines down there and get them very quickly. Interesting. So at the beginning of uh, the vaccine rollout, when they were giving out the vaccines before they were here in Canada, in the U.S., you had snowbirds who were already down there for the winter taking advantage of it. Now you have the phenomenon where the snowbirds may have been here or individuals may have been here, got their first shot, and you're saying they're heading south to get their second shot. That's correct. I'd call it three ways. You have the November crowd that there was no vaccine then. They just went because they wanted to bubble down south versus bubble in cold Canada. Then in January, when the vaccine became available and was being allowed for non-residents and snowbirds who did own property, you got a whole new influx of people. And then what you're getting now in the last two weeks is people who chose not to go down at all saying, I'm not waiting four months for my second shot. So you know what? I'm going to go down there, book the appointment. I can get it right away and head right back. I'll be at quarantine 14 days when I get back. And and what do you think about that particular situation? Are, are you good with the fact that as long as they drive to where, you know, they're not potentially spreading the virus or picking up the virus? Yeah, to be honest with you, my thoughts always from day one was not the airliner, although I do know a lot of the uh, epidemiologists are, are, are questioning that. My one was always access to hospital for the things that can go wrong in any given year with travel and travel insurance, like heart attack, stroke, or slip and fall. So I don't have a problem with going down there. My problem was staying down there for the five months and then getting sick. Well, if you're going down now just for the second vaccine, you could virtually be in and out in getting new a day or two. So that's what's going on right now. Right. But something could happen to you in that day or two as well. I mean, that's why we get insurance, right? You got it. And no one has a crystal ball. You're right. They, they may need it. And that's why they have to go with insurance. But what I'm hearing, and this is interesting, our ICUs in Canada are filled to capacity. And that's why we're in a lockdown like we are right now. Mm-hmm. But down in Florida, as an example, that hasn't truly come to fruition yet with the ICUs and the hospitals being filled to capacity. So it's kind of an interesting thought when you think about it. What about proof of vaccination or a COVID-19 vaccine passport that's been talked about? Uh, Your thoughts on whether that will be mandatory for travelers, uh, even just going back and forth over the border by car? Yeah, I think it's really important that it's going to be put into place now, whether morally and ethically this is going to fly is another question. But from a travel perspective, 
countries will and probably will demand that you do provide proof of both vaccinations. Right now, nobody is recognizing vaccines, either government or insurance companies. So at this point, it doesn't do anything for you. But when travel does open up again, there will definitely be countries that say you have to show proof of vaccination in order to get into our country. And I think that's where it will be. Will it extend to cinemas and pubs and sporting attractions? That's where you open up a lot of gray area as to who got the vaccines and who didn't get them. Interesting. The pharmacist who gave me my AstraZeneca vaccine on Sunday, he gave us, um, you know, a wallet size certificate of our first dose. And he said, well, you, you, you'll want to put that in your passport. And I thought, here we go. Right. This is the beginnings of uh, having to show proof of vaccine to travel. Yeah, there's no doubt it's going to be a precursor to the vaccine passport as we know it, whether it be on your phone or whether it be a document of some sort. And then that will lead to the amber, red and green lights traffic system that uh, England's talking about. Something will come out of this. There will be no doubt you're going to have to get some recognition, the fact that you had both vaccines. This has obviously been a challenging time for you, Martin, um, in in the travel business. Uh, how, how are you managing personally and professionally? No doubt. Our sales are down well over 75%, but all I can hope and dream is that it will come back, pent-up demand will be bigger and better than ever, and travel in the year 2022, I think, will be numbers that we've never seen before. So I have to believe in that at this point and, and hope that we all get vaccinated and we all get back to traveling again. Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, Inc. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Melanie in High Park phoned to tell us what she sees in her High Park neighborhood, which has her scared about the growing numbers of COVID cases. I'm shocked how many young people, and I mean, this is on a daily basis for the last few months. They're walking in front of my house to go into High Park. And they are breathing and shouting in each other's face. None of them are masked. And I'm really concerned, really concerned for their health. And I'm in shock. They have absolutely no, no compunction to, to realize what they're doing. Even today, I counted over 50 people just in each other's face. And, and it really, really, really scared me for them, for their health, for their well-being. Peter in Thornhill called with similar comments. I've noticed for nine months now that the teenagers, uh, young adults and teenagers, and even younger kids are all congregating in mass, uh, in groups, in the parks, in the skateboarding parks, basketball courts, on the street, with no masks. Um, They mostly, from what I understand, are asymptomatic. So they um, are the carriers and the spreaders. They go home. They don't know they have uh, the COVID. They, they spread it to their parents, and then it goes through the community. So the government's worried about closing, uh, vaccinating 80-year-old people in nursing homes and closing down stores, 
which are mostly frequented by adults who are wearing masks, they completely miss the boat. They're missing the boat all the way through. They're sitting in their, the experts are sitting in their ivory towers in their offices, not having a clue. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Nancy in Toronto, who wants to see essential workers get their shots, even if it means taking the shots to the factories and manufacturing plants. I so agree with that about getting mobile units out to those food processing plants, out to Amazon. I don't understand how, why it's taken so long. It's it's a basic, it's, it's not that hard to do this. The government is spending tons of money. This is just another simple thing to do. And I, I don't understand. Every week, there's the numbers of, they, here are the cases in the different workplaces. They name the companies. How difficult is it to go and sit there? Yes, of course, some people do not want the vaccine, but some of those people are going to want the vaccine. And I also don't think it's hard to get some people in those buses who speak their la- who speak another language. Of course, people are going to want to have someone talk to them about the vaccine. It's not that hard. We yeah. live in a, in a city with how many different languages? Of course, dozens we can and dozens. do this. Yeah. I think that the government doesn't want to do that. Nancy's voice was heard. This very formula was announced by Premier Doug Ford on Wednesday. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.